0: And now, Lord, as we open up our hearts to study and to apply your word, help it to thrive in our lives as we aim to keep, to obey by your grace, by your spirit, what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Ephesians chapter 3. We've been taking about a half a chapter a week. And tonight we're in chapter 3, verse 14 through the end of the book, 14 through 20. When I was a boy, a younger boy, I would eavesdrop on my parents and my brothers. I was the youngest of three, uh, of four boys, and so uh, I'd always love to get close to a room and put my ear in the door and listen to what they were saying, because it was often about me. And I was curious to find out what they were saying about me, so like any good, red-blooded American kid, I learned to eavesdrop. When I first married Lenya, I would eavesdrop on her worship times with the Lord, because she was very vocal. She liked to get in a room and open her Bible and talk out loud to the Lord and sing out loud to the Lord, and I just put my ear to the door and it would be such a blessing to eavesdrop on her prayer life. Now. Don't worry, I don't go around making a practice of this lately, I, don't, I won't do that to you, though I have been accused of it. I'll never forget the gal who came up to me a few years ago and she said, you've been following me around, haven't you? I said, I've never met you. She said, oh, I know you've been following me around because the sermon you preached today, I could swear that you knew exactly how I've been living this week. I said, well, I haven't been following you around, but I know somebody who has. And she said, who? I said, God. Sometimes it's educational to listen to the way people pray. We're going to eavesdrop on one of the most powerful prayer warriors in history, Paul the Apostle. And it's the second time in Ephesians he writes down, he records for us his communication to God about people. So often, Paul spoke to people about God. A few times, he speaks to God about people. And one of the best things you can ever do in getting to know somebody is to pray with them. I recommend that, especially to young people who are dating. What are they like spiritually? Well, I don't know. You don't know? Well, why don't you just say, let's pray and see what the response is. You learn a lot about a person when you pray, when you listen to them talk to God about whatever's on their hearts about their lives. Sometimes it's educational to hear little kids pray. For instance, um, Debbie, age seven, uh, her parents wrote this down. She said, Dear God, please send a new baby for mommy. The new baby you sent last week cries too much. (laughs) I want to trade it in, in other words. An eight-year-old by the name of Angela said, Dear God, this is my prayer. Could you please give my brother some brains? So far, he doesn't have any. David, age seven, said, Dear God, I need a raise in my allowance. Could you have one of your angels tell my father? Thank you. Uh, Eight-year-old by the name of Diane prayed, Dear God, I am saying my prayers for me and my brother Billy because Billy is six months old and he can't do anything but sleep and wet his diapers. Amen. So precious. So innocent. Here we get some insight into talking to God. And there's three aspects to Paul's praying to God: adoration. That's how he begins. He begins focusing on the Lord, it's upreach, it's his communication upward. He's realizing who he's talking to. Then there's intercession. He prays for other people. Whenever you pray for other people, that's the term. It means you're interceding for them. You're talking to God about them, their needs, God's purpose in their lives. And then third is benediction. He closes with uh, a beautiful outburst of praise in worship to God. So adoration, intercession, and benediction. Let's look at these verses together and then we'll go back and comment on them. Verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints... What is the width and length and depth and height? And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. According to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. What I love, first of all, about this prayer, is that it's written down. You know, he's writing a letter to him, and yet twice in this letter, once in Philippians and once in Colossians, Paul makes sure that his prayer is written down as if if recognizing that this is going to become a template for people in the future. He wants them to know in writing What his prayer request for them is. I think that to me is interesting. Um, Jesus Christ prayed in such a way that his disciples saw him praying and then came to him afterwards and said, teach us to pray. And I love the request. It's not teach us how to pray. They were Jewish. They grew up praying their whole lives. They had recited prayers. But they saw Jesus praying. They saw, no doubt, the effect of that communication with the Father in Jesus' life. They wanted it to teach us to pray, teach us to be about the business of praying. And on one occasion, Jesus prayed out loud in front of his disciples. They heard it. It made an impact on them. And John recorded the whole thing, John chapter 17. Now, that whole concept so impressed me, I wrote a book about it called When God Prays. Gleaning those uh, uh, precious, needful examples, lessons on how to communicate effectively to God by looking at the prayer life of Jesus. What was the most important thing on Jesus' prayer palette as he's about to face the cross? He's about to die. Is the last few moments on earth with the Father praying for people. What were those most important things? And so we do that here with Paul the Apostle. As we look at now his second prayer to the Father. And and first of all, verse uh, 14 and 15 is adoration. Acknowledging who God is. Verse 14, for this reason... We'll get back to that because we looked at that last week. For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. From whom the whole family in heaven... And earth is named. If you remember last week, we looked at the same phrase at the beginning of the chapter. For this reason. In fact, would you look at verse 1? He says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Now, my Bible has a dash after the word Gentiles. And the way it's written in the original is verse 2 to verse 13 is a parenthetical thought, a long, long, long sentence that ends, goes from verse two to verse 13. Then he picks up the thought in verse 14. Again, he says, for this reason, it's all part of the same reason. The parenthesis you remember was all about the mystery, all about the mystery. He uses that term over and over again. The mystery that was kept hidden in the Old Testament but is now revealed in the New Testament is simply this. God's mysterious secret, his plan was to take Jew and Gentile, knock down the borders, knock down the boundaries, racial distinctions, class distinctions, religious distinctions, and make them all one in something he calls the church, the body of Christ. Jesus then becomes our peace. He's the common denominator. Doesn't matter your background. He brings us all one in the church. So that parenthetical statement is all about the mystery. But he still uses this phrase. For this reason, I bow my knee. What reason? It's the reason of the mystery. It's the reason he started speaking about in chapter 2 around verse 13, 14, 15, verse 12, right around there where he talks about there's no more separation, there's no more wall of division, no more distinction anymore. We're one in Christ. He's our peace. And so that's all that same thought in verse 1 and also here in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now based upon that, Paul is going to make some remarks some prayer requests for other people. The church at Ephesus. And he records it, he writes it down, and he's praying for something he knows is the will of God. He knows it's the will of God to reconcile people who have been divided. Jew and Gentile. He knows that's God's will and so he prays for it. One of the secrets in getting your prayers answered yes is praying for God's will. Well, you say, well, that's obvious. Well, you know, you'd think it would be obvious, but to a lot of people it doesn't seem like it is. Because they'll be praying for something and then wondering, why didn't God answer me? Well, God answers every prayer that His children pray. He'll say yes to some. He'll say no to others. By the way, that's an answered prayer. When you ask God for something and He says no, you got an answer. Well, that's not the answer I wanted. But it's an answer, and it's the best answer. But if you want a yes answer, you pray according to the will of God. You say, well, okay, how do I know the will of God? I'm glad you asked. The Bible, the Word of God, the principles that emerge out of the Bible, that's why Bible reading and prayer need to go together. Because the more you read, the more you understand the mind, the heart, the principles of God, and you'll be praying according to the will of God. You don't have to look around and try to discover it. You'll know it. It will become intuitive. So before you pray, scriptures may come to mind as you're thinking about an issue. And then you'll be able to pray with confidence. Hey, I'm praying now directly for the will of God. And John says, whenever we do that, we are assured that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. Notice what he says in those two verses. I bow my knees Now, keep in mind, he's writing from a prison cell. If he meant this literally, Paul would have made quite an impression on the prison guards as he would be there, chain on each hand, and he would say, Pardon me, gentlemen. And he got down on his knees. Perhaps he did that as he prayed out loud for people. And then he had, at least in a couple of letters we know, an amanuensis a secretary who would be listening to what Paul was dictating and he would be writing them down. So it could be that he literally bowed his knees and and prayed this prayer in such a way that the the prison guards, a captive audience, were able to watch what he was doing and hear what he was praying. But the idea is uh, probably figurative. He's just simply saying, I adore God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. And so he begins his prayer with adoration. It brings up a point, though. The point, the question is, what is the proper posture for Christians to use when praying? Is there one? Should we stand when we pray? As some do. Let us us rise. Is kneeling on the ground uh, the best way to do it, like I was taught as a child? Is raising one's hands, is swaying back and forth, is that the right posture? And different people have different traditions, do they not? When it comes to a proper way to pray. I grew up in a church where we had kneelers, wooden kneelers, and wooden pews. They were invented, I think, by medieval torturers who wanted to make sure that when you approach God, you should be as miserable as possible. And and that was my tradition. And You'd kneel, and then you'd sit, and then you'd stand, and you'd sit, and then you'd kneel. And then I couldn't wait to sit again, but then they made you stand again, then you had to kneel again. Some people feel that you should close your eyes and fold your hands, that this is the proper way to pray. And so people will say, will you bow with me in prayer? Maybe that was the idea when Paul says, I bow my knees. It was just a, a reference to figuratively, I'm bowing in my heart unto the Lord. Um... Interesting, in Scripture, you don't find a commandment to fold your hands and bow your head, close your eyes in prayer. In fact, you find in Scripture the command to raise your hands. I pray, Paul said, that men would everywhere lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting. Abraham stood before the Lord when he made intercession for the city of Sodom in Genesis chapter 18. Uh, King Jehoshaphat bowed on the ground with his soldiers as he prayed before the battle of Moab in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Daniel bowed six times a day, uh, excuse me, three times a day facing Jerusalem in Daniel chapter 6. Jesus knelt on the ground in Luke chapter 22 and then in anguish fell on the ground prostrate before his father. David sat Second Samuel chapter 7, as he offered a prayer of thanksgiving. So, what's the proper posture? All of the above. The most important posture isn't the body, but the heart. Because it is possible to have a posture of the body that your heart isn't following. Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to stand in the synagogues and on the street corners in such a way that they draw attention to themselves. It's all about the heart. Now, there were a couple of ministers that were debating the right posture of prayer, and uh, one of them um, uh, insisted that it's all it's, its all in the hands, he said. You know, he says, if your hands are together, they should be pointed upward toward heaven, the eyes should be closed, and the, the face should have a pious look about it. That's the proper posture. Another minister from a different tradition said, I disagree, it's not in the hands... It's all about the body. I like to get on my knees before the Lord and show that I'm deeply humble. Another uh, pastor, trying to outdo the other guy, said, Oh, no, I I bow before the Lord and eventually get uh, uh, all the way down, face down on the ground. Well, there was a guy who was a, a phone repairman in the background listening to this, and he said, Gentlemen, uh, the most powerful prayer I ever prayed was is when I was dangling by my heels from a telephone pole suspended 40 feet off the ground. I never prayed like that ever again. That was so powerful. When I pray, I like to walk. I like to take a walk and discuss things with the Lord. Go over a whole list in my mind. Things that are burdening my heart. Pour out my heart as David said before the Lord. I like to pray when I drive. I don't close my eyes and pray when I drive. Eyes wide open. Again, that's that's our own tradition to close your eyes. I keep them wide open. But I like to pray when I drive, especially around here, because I find that if I drive around here, I have a lot of time to pray. Because you're often in traffic for a long period of time. But it's the position of the heart, not the body, that's the most important. The best way to open prayer is to bow our hearts before the Lord. Sometimes it's helpful if you want to bow the body, but to bow the heart and the will and surrender and worship. It's always important when we begin communication with heaven to recognize to whom we are praying. Instead of rushing right into the throne room and knocking going, I need something now. Uh, Even if you need something now, I think it's good to remember to whom it is you're praying and to worship Him, and to bring reverence before the Lord. And here's the example I'm going to use. In Acts chapter 4, they were threatened. Their lives were on the line. It was now illegal to preach the gospel in Jerusalem. They had just been threatened by the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so they get together and they begin their prayers. Lord, You are God you made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. Who, by the mouth of your servant David, said, Why do the nations rage and the people imagine the vain things? The king, and they quote a portion of Psalm 2. But they begin recognizing they're talking to God who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. From that recognition point, they bring their request to the Lord. But it's a lot easier to pray in confidence and faith When you're realizing, you're talking to the guy who created the heavens, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. It's a perspective that you come into his throne room with. And so Paul does that here. It's all about adoration at first. It's all about that perspective adjustment. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. When you pray, he didn't say, begin this way. Give us this day our daily bread. No, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so we realize to whom it is we're praying. Jesus did that. I mentioned John chapter 17. He begins his prayer. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son may glorify thee. Glorify your name. And the first part of that prayer was all about adoration, bringing glory to the Father. Um... God is your friend. He's your father. There's an intimacy. There's a relationship. Yet, I do notice a tendency in some Christian circles to minimize the respect part and to magnify the intimacy friend, Abba, Daddy part. Now, all of those things are true. The relationships of intimacy, Abba, Father, Friend. But... I just sometimes see it, uh, the respect pushed down a little bit too far. We we become a little too chummy with God. You know, the guy in the sky, God and I are buddies. He's still God, and you're not. And it's important you keep that perspective of relationship whenever you talk to Him. The Jews always did that historically. Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu, blessed art thou, Lord God king of the universe, they would pray. And then their requests would be given to God. The second is uh, intercession. Let's look at that. Four requests Paul prays. By the way, intercession is just when you pray for other people. I think it's the hardest form of prayer. And here's why. I find it easy to worship because God's wonderful. (laughs) He's he's, um, worthy of my praise. I just start thinking about what he's done and who he is. And it's very easy to let worship come from my heart and fall off my lips. So I don't find worship as tedious. When it comes to personal petition, I don't find that difficult either. Because I know what I need. I'm very in touch with my needs and my wants. And I can I can bring a whole list before God quite easily. But when it comes to praying for other people's needs, that's what I think Paul referred to when he said labor in prayer. That's the real work. Because I'm not in touch with your needs in the same way that I'm in touch with my needs and wants. So when I write down your prayer needs and I take them home and I bring them before the Lord because I'm not you and I'm experiencing my own difficulties, my own concerns, that's where the labor comes in. But it's a labor of love. And so Paul, in a labor of love, prays and records this intercession. And the first thing he prays for for them Is spiritual stability. Spiritual stability or strength. Verse 16, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Notice the phrase, according to the riches of his glory. Notice that it's not out of the riches of his glory. Example, a man has a a billion dollars, let's say. I don't know who, but I'd like to. He has a billion dollars. If he gives out of his riches, he could give any amount. Could be a dollar, could be ten million dollars. Now, if he gives according to the riches, that is in proportion to what he has, he's going to give a whole lot. God blesses and strengthens, that's what Paul is praying, that God would strengthen you not just out of what he has in terms of strength, but according to it. In other words, when you ask God to strengthen you, be ready for God to lavish his strength upon you. Be ready to get strong. And that's how Paul prays, because he knows the power and the strength of God. He's been in so many situations that required supernatural strength. And that's what he prays for, that he would grant you According to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with all might through his spirit in the inner man. You'll notice something about the way Paul prays, whether it's here or whether it's in chapter one of Ephesians or whether it's in Philippians or Colossians. Whenever Paul prays for people, his chief concern isn't their material well-being or their physical well-being, but their spiritual well-being. Not that God isn't interested in in us physically and materially. He is. He said, ask, seek, knock. He healed people. He blessed people. He fed people. But of chief concern is our spiritual well-being. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else will be added to you. Paul knew something. Paul knew that if the inner man is what it ought to be, the outer man will be taken care of on its own. It'll take care of itself. You seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and everything else will be added unto you. So often, we place the emphasis on the wrong part. That's what society does. Uh, Any commercial, the emphasis isn't on how are you doing spiritually? It's all about you need this product to make you more attractive outwardly, physically. That's where the society places the emphasis. God and Paul knowing God, places the emphasis on the inner man. Question, what is the inner man? The inner man is the real you, the heart of you, the core of who you are. You might call it the heart of a man. But the inner man is who you are in spirit before the Lord. Strip away the facades. strip away the material part, the, the stuff that's around us, It's who you are in character before God. Okay, what does it mean for the Holy Spirit to strengthen the inner man? I think it simply means when your motives, your thoughts, your desires are controlled by God. It describes a person yielding to the Holy Spirit. And when you do, the stability that comes from that, from within. You and I, as Christians, have a couple of things going on. We have two natures. The nature you were born with. And the nature you were born again with. The nature you were born with is its the old you. The, the Bible calls it the old man. It doesn't mean your dad. The old man is who you used to be, the way you used to think, the things you used to do. That's the old you. It's the nature you were born with. We were by nature, Paul said, the children of wrath, even as others. We were doomed to hell by uh, the sin of Adam and our own sin, apart from Christ, apart from atonement. That's the old you. Those old appetites. Now you have a new nature. And the old nature and the new nature fight each other. They're in conflict with each other. And it's a conflict you'll have to live with till you die and you're in heaven. Whichever one you feed... Whichever one you pay attention to and nurture is the nature that will win. If you feed the old nature, if you let things come into your eyes and your ears and your thought life and your conversations and your actions, where you feed the old nature, you're going to find yourself that carnal lifestyle and you're not going to find the Bible and fellowship and witnessing ever appealing. And you wonder why. It's because whatever you feed is the nature that grows and wins. It's like the difference between a flower and a weed. You have to nurture flowers. You have to tend them. You've got to fertilize them. You just can't hang out and let it grow. You've got to nurture it. A weed is different. Have you ever had to purposely nurture, feed, and fertilize a weed? No. They just grow on their own. Your old nature is like a weed. All you have to do is nothing, and that old nature will grow and take control. But the new nature you need to nurture, nourish, needs to be strengthened. And that's what Paul is praying for. Stability, spiritual strength that comes through the Holy Spirit. Our cooperation is involved. But he's praying that God, according to the riches of His glory, would give us stability, strength in the inner man by His Holy Spirit. There was an article uh, by National Geographic several years ago on the Alaskan bull moose. And uh, the article showed um, uh, these uh, two uh, guys at mating season, these two males, antlers-locked, fighting each other. In the fall mating season, um, the uh, guys will get together and they'll fight each other, you know, to see who's the biggest, most macho moose, Uh To get to be the chief guy during mating season, you know what determines who's going to win is usually the stoutness, the size of the moose, and the strength of the antlers. Bigger the antlers, stronger the antlers, heftier the moose in the fight, he's going to win. And the point of the article is this: that means the war that is fought in fall is really won in the summer, when they feed, when they eat where they find the best pasture and food to strengthen the body and strengthen the antler system. So the battles they fight in the fall are really won earlier back in the summer. The battles that we fight spiritually are already won or lost in the inner man in the daily preparations before God. They will strengthen us or we will lose the battle based on that. So he prays for stability. Second thing he prays for in intercession is spiritual intimacy. Verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, why would he pray that? Isn't Christ already in our hearts? Doesn't Jesus already live in the hearts of the Ephesian believers? After all, he said in chapter 1 that they were chosen by God. They were redeemed by God. They were forgiven by God. So it sounds like God is already living inside of them. Did they mysteriously lose their salvation between chapter 2 and chapter 3? No. It's important that you understand what this word dwell means. The word in Greek, katoikeo. Katoikeo. comes from a combination of two words kata, which means uh, down or down upon. And then the second word, uh, oikeo, which means to inhabit a house. The literal translation then that Christ may dwell in your hearts is that Christ may uh, inhabit down in your heart. Or literally, as we would say it, that Christ may settle down and make himself feel at home in your house. So any Christian could say, Jesus lives within me. It's true. If you've received him as Lord and Savior, he's inside of you. question is, does he feel at home there? Have you lived your life and arranged your lifestyle and your thoughts so that it's like family. He settles down and can take his sandals off, so to speak, I guess, and and feel at home in your heart. There's a little booklet put out, I think in the 1940s, by Robert Boyd Munger. You probably read it. It's a Christian classic called My Heart, Christ's Home. And here's the picture. The, the idea is uh, a person is... Letting Jesus, who knocks at the door of the house, the heart, he opens the door. Jesus comes in and he invites Jesus to stay. Well, Jesus goes through all the different rooms of the house. Library, that's the thought life. Family room, you know, kitchen, whatever's the appetite's going on. All the different parts of the house. Jesus wants to rearrange things. Well, Munger writes this. He entered with me and he looked around at all the books in the bookcases. The magazines on the table. The pictures on the walls That's his thought life. As I followed his gaze, I became uncomfortable. Strangely enough, I had not felt badly about this room before. But now that he was there looking at these things, I was embarrassed. There were some books on the shelves that his eyes were too pure to look at. On the table were a few magazines. A Christian had no business reading. As for the pictures on the walls and the imagination and the thoughts of my mind... Some of these were shameful. What if Jesus were to literally walk into your house right now? If he went into your family room and he was just kind of looking at the DVD titles and the CD titles, would you say, hey, Jesus, let's put this in and watch it? Would you feel uncomfortable? If Jesus got on your computer and looked at your favorite Internet uh, internet sites, would you say, hey, let, let me show you a few things? Or would you feel embarrassed at all? If Jesus were to come in and say, turn on the TV with the remote and check out what you have on cable, would that embarrass you at all? Uh, If you were to go through your checkbook and see what you spend your money on, would you be embarrassed about that? These are all good questions in making an evaluation of the at-homeness of Christ with us. And that's what Paul prays for. Not only that you'd be strengthened spiritually, but that Jesus would feel at home in your heart third thing he prays for is charity third on his list for the ephesian believers love or charity verse 17 that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height and to know the love of christ which passes knowledge There's a lot of ways to look at this verse. Some commentators, and some taters are more common than others, but some commentators look at this width, length, depth, and height, and they take measurements of Christ's love. And I've seen it done beautifully, whereas uh, a width is uh, God's love is for the whole wide world. Jew and Gentile, that's what he's doing. He's talking about the chosen race, but the other ones that he has chosen out of the Gentiles, and he brings them together. That's his width. The worldwide embrace. And at length is time, that from the beginning of time through all of the epics, even into the future, Christ's love will reach anyone who will receive him. And then his depth is the pit from which he extracted us. We were in sin and he reached down. That's the depth that he went. And then That final one, the height that he loves us, not only at the time he took us out of the pit, but all the way into glory, the height of heaven, is the way some will look at it. He's praying for love here. Did you notice that in verse 17? Rooted and grounded in love. And then verse 19, know the love of Christ which passes knowledge. Very rich metaphor. Rooted and grounded in love. The root system of a tree is its stability It's where it really derives not only its stability, it's nourishment. It's nourishment from. And so what he's praying for is that our commitment to one another, our love for one another, wouldn't be shallow. Easiest thing in the world is to say, I love you. The hardest thing is to actually love you and to do it, to practice it. You can be known for hugs, embraces, and and I love yous, but... He prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Now, when a heart opens up to God and our lives are starting to to be lived where Christ really feels at home in the way we think, what we see, what we do, what we say, when that happens, His love pours through us. What did Jesus tell His 12 men on The night that he washed their feet in the upper room he washed their feet it was the role of a slave and then he said something to him as i have done to you so do to one another love one another as i have loved you well what kind of love did jesus have well let's examine it first of all it was sacrificial right he got on his knees and washed their feet then he got on a cross and he died for them several hours later so his love was sacrificial Second, his love was unconditional. No matter what their condition was, whether they loved him back or not, he didn't say, well, Peter, I don't love you anymore. You denied me. He he loved him unconditionally, sacrificially, non-reciprocally, even when doubted by Thomas, even when scorned and betrayed by Judas. It was sacrificial. It was unconditional. It was non-reciprocal. It was steady, stable, constant love for his people. So that we would be rooted and grounded in love and to know the love of Christ, he says, which passes knowledge. What kind of love should a Christian husband have for his spouse? Let's see. Unconditional. Non-reciprocal. Sacrificial. What kind of love should a Christian wife have for her husband? Let's see. Sacrificial unconditional, non-reciprocal, if need be. What kind of love should parents have for children and children for parents and church people for church people? Unconditional, sacrificial, non-reciprocal, if need be. That's what it means to be rooted and grounded in love. But what's interesting to me in this prayer is verse 19. He prays that we would know the love of God which passes knowledge. Huh? Wait a minute. He's praying that we would know the unknowable, comprehend the incomprehensible, apprehend the inapprehensible. I pray that you would know something that passes your ability to know it. Okay. You wonder, why would he bother praying for that? It's sort of a parallel. I'm going to read it to you. Romans 8, verse 37 through 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither anything present or in the future or powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The height of his love, as one old ancient commentator said, is the pole That was vertical of the cross. And then the width was the patibulum, that crossbar where Jesus embraced all of humanity. Incomprehensible that God would love us that much. But he prays that we would grow to appreciate the kind of sacrificial and unconditional love that Jesus had on the cross. And with that taste, be able to love one another. Like that modern quip that says, I asked Jesus how much he loved me. And he stretched out his hands and he said this much. And then he died. His love is what took him to the cross. It wasn't nails that held him on the cross. It was love. And that's the kind of love Paul prays for us. The fourth and final thing Paul prays for in this intercession is capacity. A spiritual capacity look at it, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We're all growing as Christians. And if you're a believer, the Holy Spirit is in you. And many of us are filled with the Spirit. But it doesn't mean we're absolutely done now. It's like, okay, I'm filled. I can't take anymore. I'm filled to capacity. No, Um, what what you ought to picture it as like is you've got a thimble and you go out to the ocean and you put ocean in it, you put a little water in it, and that thimble is filled with ocean, but it doesn't have all the ocean in it. It's filled, but there's a lot more to go. And life is a continual uh, journey of discovering the depth and the height and the love of God. It passes knowledge and we get filled. But Paul says, I pray that you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. And as we mentioned before, it will take Jesus all of eternity to reveal the love that he has for you. It'll be forever and ever and ever. When will we be filled finally, fully with the fullness of God? If you say, I already am, wrong answer. It's going to be eternity. It's going to be eternity. So in one sense, this could mean dominance, that Jesus would dominate you fully. But the idea, I think, is on into eternity. 1 John chapter 3, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the children of God. But it has not yet appeared what we shall be, but we know that when we shall see him, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. David, in Psalm 17, said, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. The ultimate time of fullness comes in glory in the future. So these four requests are like four parts of a telescope. They're all connected to each other. One is part of the other. In other words, when the inner man is strengthened, it leads to a deeper intimacy with Jesus Christ, where he feels at home in your heart and life. And when he feels at home in your heart and life, you start apprehending the love of God in ways you haven't ever before, which leads to a capacity of a full spiritual life where you're self-contained. You go wherever in whatever situation and there's a fullness wherever you go. Okay, so that's the two parts of the prayer. Adoration, intercession, and finally we close with this, benediction. Look, look, look at Paul's style. Now, to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Now, Paul will often do this. He'll be writing a letter, maybe making a prayer, and a thought will strike him of this incomprehensible bounty, grace, love of God, and this outburst of praise will come forth. It's like he's writing, speaking, and then it's like, wow! God is amazing! And he writes it down. This is a, a doxology. This is his benediction. And the best way to look at these verses, because they are a couple of my favorite, is a pyramid that we're going to put up. And you can see it. Oh, there it is. We have the first... Uh, word on top. And if you're in the back, I'll have to read it to you because it's even small for my eyes up here. He's able. He's able. Next. Uh, Now unto him that he is able to do. He's not just somebody who has power and capacity. Theoretically, he uses it to do something with. Next. He is able to do all we ask or think. All. What's too hard for God? Nothing. Nothing. Next, he's able to do above all we ask or think. He's infinitely greater even than our need. He's able to do abundantly above all we ask or think. And finally, put it all together, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. It's like Paul is using every verbal description he knows to convey the power that comes to Christ. By the way, power is dunamis in Greek. And then uh, uh, the the word, um, oh, power that works in us is the word energy energy. His dynamic dynamite power that energizes us in our lives is the idea. So that's his prayer. And this is what we're going to do in closing. The band's going to come up and close this in a song. But before we do that, we're going to pray for each other. Now, if you're not into praying for people, it's okay. We're not going to make you do anything that you'd be embarrassed about. But we're going to ask you, if you're not used to doing this, live a little. Get out more. Be stretched a little bit spiritually. And pray for one another like Paul prayed Praise God, first of all, that you're a part of his family, that he's broken down walls of division, that people from different backgrounds, different economic statuses of life, uh, different situations can all come together and we're all part of the same body. So praise God for that. And then pray for some of these things, that God would strengthen that person, that they would have an intimacy with God where Jesus would feel at home more and more in his or her life that they would experience God's love and they would be filled with God. So we're going to take just a few moments, pray for one another, and then we're going to close the service together. Let's pray, first of all, corporately. Heavenly Father, we realize that we're talking to You, the One who sits on the throne, the One who is sovereign, all-powerful, all-gracious, who loves us with a love that will never completely understand but we pray that we would be able to understand that which is incomprehensible a little more lord we pray that you'd strengthen each one with a a, a power that would stabilize even the weakest christian here some of us are facing some difficult situations in the coming weeks the kind of things that would absolutely destabilize us we pray that you'd strengthen us not out of but according to the riches of your glory we pray Lord that with each person here that we would live and think and decide in such a way that you would feel at home in us you'd be able to settle down and feel very at ease and at home in our lives, in our marriages, in our working relationships, in the way we deal with people, in the way we drive down the road, in the way we order food in restaurants, that you would feel at home in our lives, our hearts. And now just take a few moments and pray for that person who's next to you. Pray out loud for them or the people around you. If there's nobody next to you, turn around and face somebody there and pray for them.